0: kings and queens of england in the modern era make few decisions and wield little power when compared to their medieval counterparts where william the conqueror might have set taxes written laws and waged wars queen elizabeth ii now does none of those things as there is a parliament of elected and appointed officials who oversee them for her It's a system known as constitutional monarchy, meaning that the monarch is limited by a written constitution, which says what powers they do and do not have. That system is in place because of the year 1688, a year of crisis in England. The throne was held by James II, a Catholic to scare all of England's Protestants, and in 1688 he had a newborn son, meaning that a Catholic dynasty could continue on indefinitely. Fearing his influence, the English Parliament wrote a letter to a Dutch prince, begging him to save them and to help get rid of James and the Catholics once and for all. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 53, The Glorious Revolution. This episode is part of a series about the English Revolution. If you haven't already, start by listening to the episodes about Bloody Mary Macbeth, the Gunpowder Plot, and the English Civil War. So I have had this tradition for the past few years where at the end of every year or in the December of every year, I like to write down my favorite things from the year. And usually that's like the media that I consumed, like movies or books or TV or whatever, Mm -hmm. But I also include other favorite things from the year just as a way of, you know, looking back on the year, reflecting on all the time we've spent with the year. And I don't know. It's a nice way to, I think, chronicle the seasons. Yeah. So I wanted to do the same here with our getting to know you questions. So if, uh, if you agree, I think a great getting to know you series of questions for the month of December would be to talk about our favorite things throughout the year i love that i'm so excited to do this so (laughs) i i think the natural first question is what are your favorite movies from 2021 and let me give a quick quick caveat because at least for myself when i answer this question it's not necessarily the movies that came out in 2021 it's anything that i consumed it, yeah. or experienced for the first time yeah.
1: um well i'm really glad that out exists because i probably saw like four movies this year like new movies. oh yeah. <laughs> <I> didn't, <laughs> yeah didn't end up going to the theater hardly at all i did see a quiet place part two in the theater which was quite good um, oh i the,
0: haven't seen that yet yeah it was, was, that- it was good
1: yeah it was very good um but yeah other than that i haven't seen a ton of movies in the theater i saw in the heights in the theater which i also enjoyed um, but the, oh. the the three movies that I'll um, list honorable mention to those ones I just listed. And then also honorable mention to killing of a sacred deer that you and I have talked about a little bit. That movie rules. I it's, loved that movie. It's pretty bonkers, but really cool. Yeah. And um, I think about it a lot. It's, 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 it's a cool movie. It's on Netflix or it was recently, probably still is, but these are the three movies Um oh and um honorable mention to v for vendetta which i watched for this podcast oh. just a few weeks ago um but the first one is a movie called sing street and oh yeah. yeah i might have told you about this as well anytime i watch a good movie i text you and say hey have you seen this <laughs> <laughs> um so sing street it came out in 2016 um it's kind of a um, definitely flew under my radar. So I, I will say it flew under the radar. I don't know if that's um, fair to say, but came out in 2016. It's an Irish movie um, about a kid who starts a band in Dublin in the 80s. And it is very, very good. And my wife and I watch it together and we both really liked it. Um, it was a recommendation from a friend of the podcast, Matt Weiler who has a movie podcast. I don't know if we talked about that when he came on. Um, It might not have been going at the time, but he has a really great movie podcast. Um, And he talked about it on there. And so I got curious and went and watched it and it is very good. And so that's one of my first um, recommendations or top movies of the year. The second one is a movie called The Courier. Um, I think this one also let me look I think it also came out um, oh no yeah it came out in 2020 so almost this year Um, it's got Benedict Cumberbatch and Rachel Brosnahan in it and it's about it's a true story of a um, Cold War businessman who gets caught up in um, some espionage with Russia and it's very good like I said it's a true story and I really enjoyed watching it it's um um, really inspiring and a story I'd never heard. And I'll, I'll take one of those, a true story I've never heard at any time. My last movie that I saw and also didn't come out quite this year, but is fairly new is the um, Coen Brothers film, The Ballad of Bust- Buster Scruggs. Um, really excellent movie. Loved every minute of it. Um, I'm a Western guy. I really like um, the genre of Westerns and thinking about it in different ways. Wow and the Coen's definitely thought about this. They really take the Western um, and kind of examine it and make you think about it in some different ways. And it's, it's really interesting and quirky. And um, if you like the Coen brothers, you'll love this movie. Even if you don't like the Coen brothers, it's, um, I wouldn't call it a departure, but it's a totally different style from any of their other movies that I've ever seen. And I would highly recommend it. For my own picks this
0: year, I'm going to have to say that two movies really stuck out. That's not a real word. Stood out in particular. Have you ever said stuck out before? That is a weird... Stuck. Yeah. Oh, stuck.
1: I was like, yeah, stuck out.
0: Yes. Stuck stuck out out is not a real term. So I'm going to say two movies stood out in particular. And the first is obviously Dune. The movie about the famous novel by whatever his name is i don't remember (laughs) and directed by (laughs) yeah oh herbert something yeah frank Frank herbert Herbert. Herbert. and directed by denny villeneuve or however you say it the canadian guy who did the arrival movie and Mm -hmm. also the blade runner movie i thought dune was fantastic i thought the acting was wonderful. The art direction was beautiful. I keep listening to the soundtrack over and over and I keep looking at art from the movie. I thought it was just fantastic and a really wonderful theatrical experience that I am I feel lucky to have seen in the theaters. Because, well, I'm, yeah, well, I'm definitely
1: going to go see that one in the theater because from everything you've told me and what I've seen, it needs to be seen in the theater. So I got to do that before yeah. I leave the theaters.
0: Okay. Yeah. So
1: fully recommend
0: Dune. I think if you can see it in theaters before it's gone, please do. It's fantastic. But I, I really loved it. And then my other favorite movie from this year was meant exactly for me. It's the movie that came out this summer, The Green Knight. And I think we possibly may do an episode on it eventually, because I really liked it a lot. And it's based on a medieval text. So it would fit into our story about our series about the Middle Ages. Yeah. The green to... knight, oh yeah. The Green Knight is based on the medieval text Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and it's all about Sir Gawain one of the knights of King Arthur's court and one day a uh, knight that's fully green like he's made of plants and stuff shows up at King Arthur's court and he offers a challenge to Sir Gawain to come and face him in combat and it's a, it's a thrilling thrilling movie a wonderful story I, I really liked it.
1: You're right that one was like made perfectly for you a medieval british <laughs> movie that's right up your street. Yeah it's right up my alley.
0: <laughs> it's fantastic and it looked really good and A24 was the distributor. I mean mm. they don't miss so you know. Those are my favorite movies for the year. Mm. We have officially reached the climax of our series about the English Revolution. Today, we will be talking about the Glorious Revolution, which really is the event that people are talking about when they're mentioning the English Revolution. If they're doing so casually, it's going to be about the Glorious Revolution and the changes that that had on England as a result. But before we get into that, there is a little especially leading in from our last episode when we talked about Charles I and his execution. So we'll get into that context before we get into the Glorious Revolution. So you remember in the last episode that we talked about how Charles I was kind of seen as a tyrant king. He wasn't prosecuting the Catholics the way that parliament wanted and he was kind of doing his own thing and he dissolved parliament kind of capriciously And as a result, there was a civil war that ensued and Charles I was executed. And at this point, the monarchy in England was officially abolished. And a person named Oliver Cromwell took over as Lord Protector of England at that point, where there's no longer a king on the throne, but Oliver Cromwell is Lord Protector and he's kind of ruling in the stead of the king. Hmm. England at this point is entering a period called the Interregnum, which from the Latin would mean between the reigns, because clearly the reign of Charles I has ended, and spoiler alert, there's going to be a reign of another king that's (laughs) coming along. But in the meantime, this period is called the Interregnum because it's between those two reigns. And Oliver Cromwell, you might remember from the episode when we talked about the Navigation Acts, if you listen to our series on the American Revolution, that was one of the early, early precursors of the American Revolutionary War. It happened in the 1650s. And this is exactly corresponding at that point. So Oliver Cromwell was the of England at the time that those acts were signed, and he's responsible for them being influenced in the American colonies. Why was Oliver Cromwell chosen to be Lord Protector? Uh, I think is an interesting question because he is not one of the English nobility. He's not somebody who's like a Duke of Gloucester or whatever and he has some kind of right to the throne. He doesn't have lineage all the way back to William the Conqueror or whatever. Oliver Cromwell was a little bit more humble than that. And he was born into the gentry class of England The gentry is the class that is beneath the nobility, but it's above the working class. So these are people that are rich enough that they don't have to work on a day-to-day basis, but they're not high enough that they're part of the nobility. They don't have any titles. They're not part of the House of Lords or whatever. Hmm. These are really the people that if you're reading books written by Jane Austen, you're reading books about these characters. That's the gentry is what they're called. So Oliver Cromwell comes from one of those families you know he's well off but he's not like fancy he doesn't have a title and he gets elected into parliament early on in his career which I think is interesting and after serving in parliament for a bit he fights in the English Civil War which is what we talked about last episode and he fights on the side of the parliamentarians against Charles I Obviously, that war didn't go very well for Charles I (laughs) and the parliamentarians are considered to have won the war. And that's where Oliver Cromwell really rises to power. And eventually, by the time Oliver Cromwell is said and done with, he's considered a very controversial, but at the same time, very powerful figure in English history. And Wikipedia sums this up pretty well, actually. They said... Cromwell is one of the most controversial figures in British and Irish history. He's considered a regicidal dictator by some historians, a military dictator by Winston Churchill, a bourgeois revolutionary by Leon Trotsky, and a hero of liberty by John Milton and Thomas Carlyle. His tolerance of Protestant sects did not attend to Catholics, extend to Catholics, and the measures taken by him against Catholics, particularly in Ireland, have been characterized by some as genocidal or near genocidal. So that's Oliver Cromwell. Lots going on. Um, Ireland is not a big fan of Oliver Cromwell. And <laughs> we won't get into all those details. There's a whole story you can read about. But yeah, he's he's a figure to be reckoned with. He's probably one of those figures that I think a lot of Americans have heard of, you know, yeah. not really sure what he did,
1: but yeah, it seems like a British guy. I don't know if you think that's true. I, yeah, I think so. Oliver Cromwell is a name you have probably heard. Right, right. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> of this time period of England that really yeah. we don't talk about very much. I don't think it's a very
1: popular time period. <laughs> And I, I think that's interesting because it is, it's so f- long ago, but it's kind of in between the interesting bits in some ways. Like,
0: yeah, are like, well, uh-huh. it's
1: before, like, especially for Americans, like, it's before the revolution context, because that is easier to understand. But it's not so far back that we're like King Arthur with knights yeah. and broadswords. So it's kind of in like a weird middle ground that ignorant Americans like me are like yeah sure, Braveheart time question mark You know? <laughs> yeah exactly
0: so Oliver Cromwell continues as Lord Protector he rules quote unquote or he has the power in that position for about 10 years and it only ends because he dies and he dies which leaves the rule of Lord Protector up to his son who succeeds him But his son was not very popular. Smash cut two. We still have two sons of Charles I who are very healthy, very alive, heads attached to their necks. And (laughs) anyone who was looking at the execution of Charles I as being undue or maybe inappropriate, is now seeing these two sons as very much, you know, maybe it's their right to have the throne. Yeah. So these two sons are named Charles and James. Charles was named after Charles I himself, and his son James was named after his father, who you'll remember was James I, the first of the Scottish kings that took over after Elizabeth I. And Charles II is the name of Charles's son named Charles. He takes the throne after Oliver Cromwell dies. Charles II, by the way, we have gotten to the point in English history where when you start to look at pictures of these people, the men have started to wear the poofy wigs. Ah. That is if
1: that's officially
0: where we are. Charles Despite
1: II has one of the poofy wigs. Finally, I can picture it, you know? That's exactly what my brain needs. It's like, picture the poofy wigs, got it, I'm there.
0: And it looks great, <laughs> honestly. It's a good look for Charles II. He, he looks great in the poofy wig and he takes the throne after Oliver Cromwell dies. When Charles I was executed, Charles II was 19 years old. And when England got rid of Charles I, Scotland actually didn't get rid of their king, so mm. his son Charles became Charles II king of Scotland. And he actually had an official battle on the grass with Olivia, or excuse me, with Oliver Cromwell for England. But he lost that battle. you know, the swords go together and then he loses unfortunately. And even though he was still King of Scotland, Charles II goes to France and Spain in exile for the next nine years for the rest of Oliver Cromwell's rule. But then Oliver Cromwell dies and his son, Richard, succeeds him. And Richard Cromwell was unfortunately nothing of what his father was. He was considered to be very weak. He didn't really have any popular authority over parliament. Oliver Cromwell also was like a war hero and Richard didn't really have any of that and Oliver Cromwell had a history of fighting Charles I, and Richard didn't have that either so you can imagine how he doesn't really have any political sway. So Parliament kind of turns on Richard and they aren't really interested in having him continue as Lord Protector and there's a group of Royalists in Parliament who stage a coup and instead of giving the you know rule to Richard Cromwell They invite Charles II out of exile back to England in order to become king again. Hmm. They do this, and they also do something else, which is pretty gross, pretty sinister. When Charles II comes back to England, they make him king, and then they say Oliver Cromwell was terrible. So they (laughs) dig up Oliver Cromwell's body, they hang it from the gallows and they behead his dead body. And they put it on a spike so that everybody can see it. They can say, this is what happens to men who execute our king. You get this kind of fate, ended up with you. And so then there's a crazy legend that happens. The legend is that while the head was on the spike, there was a big storm that came up and the wind blows the head from the spike onto the ground. (laughs) The guards, who's like watching the castle or whatever, picks up the head and he takes it and he hides it in his house and then he keeps it for the rest of his life and when he dies, he passes it on to his daughter and then his daughter starts to sell it as a collector's item and so she gives it to traveling museums and they start to put it on display and say, this is Oliver Cromwell's head from hundreds of years ago. And it is today now in the possession of Sydney Sussex college in Cambridge. Hmm. The head has made it all the way there and you can go see it. Presumably (laughs) that's a nice little story. (laughs) (laughs) So while Oliver Cromwell's head is being paraded throughout England to be viewed, Charles II is having a great time in court, and he has a nice reign of about 25 years. He ends up being one of the most popular English kings, and he was called the Merry Monarch because of how lively and hedonistic his court was. And Wikipedia doesn't go into any more details there. I'm not sure what they mean by (laughs) hedonistic, but I guess he had a great time, lots of good parties. There is a good quote that said, Charles II was the playboy monarch. Naughty, but nice as well.
1: Mm. And that
0: kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's Charles II. And a quick note here, actually, is ever since Charles II, we've never had another Charles in England. Until Queen Elizabeth and her son, who is also named Charles... So if Queen Elizabeth ever dies, if Charles ever takes the throne, he may be Charles III. We we might have our next Charles there with Prince Charles.
1: Okay, there you go.
0: Who knows if Queen Elizabeth will die? Who knows if Charles will even take that name as monarch? But it's a possibility.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Anyways, Charles II lives a nice long life. And he has this great reign. He's very popular. But he dies childless. He had 12 illegitimate children at the minimum, but he didn't have any legitimate ones. And so he dies without a clear heir to the throne.
1: So we're talking about Charles II. We're also talking about his brother, James II, Um, both children of... King Charles I, who we talked about in the last episode, got his head cut off. Um, So to talk about James II, um, he has the interesting honorific of the last Catholic monarch of England, Scotland, and Mm -hmm. Ireland. Um, As a child, his father, Charles I, was fighting the English Revolution. Like I said, go see our last episode about that. Um, And James II, his son, was actually present at a battle called the Battle of Edge Hill and was almost captured by parliamentary forces, so the people that Oliver Cromwell was fighting for. Um, And it was actually apparently quite close. They just barely got the royal family out of there before they were captured. Um, Tyler, you also mentioned the time spent in France in exile, and James II um, did that as well. He spent a lot of time in Mm. France, and we'll come back to that. It becomes important. Um, And then another interesting thing I found, sort of background information for James II. He was alive during the Great Fire of London, which is a great Wikipedia article you should go read. Um, And one of those times in history where everything was made of wood and then everything just burned on, um, lit on fire and um, a lot of people died. But the Great Fire of London is a, um, you know, significant historical event. But James II was the head of firefighting during this time. His brother, Charles II, the king was like hey prince little brother you should be head of the firefighting and apparently he did a good job and became very popular um, as a result in among the people because he was the guy helping to put the fires out so that's kind of cool some things we have to know about James Um, he converts to Catholicism which if you've been listening to the podcast so far you should know is like (laughs) a record scratch moment in (laughs) yeah you're probably wondering how I got here. Yeah, that's that's exactly what we're what's happening here. And part of the answer, at least, is like I said earlier, France. He made the mistake a lot of people make. You spend a little too much time in France and you lose your head. So he he went to France and he became um, he became familiar with Catholic practice and Catholic doctrine and um, became enamored of it and converted. He took his first Catholic communion in about 1668 or so, um, 1668 or 1669. But he kept it secret for almost a decade, um, living as a secret Catholic in England. Um, and outwardly, he was a practicing Anglican. Um, growing fear. So th- um, there was th- part of what you could summarize this Wikipedia article and several others surrounding it that are just growing fears of Roman Catholic influence. <laughs> growing fear—we talked about it last episode—they they were worried about this war, Roman Catholic war over in the east, and so they decided to pass all these laws. And um, a similar thing happens here: English Parliament introduced the Test Act in 1673, and that meant that all like government officials, military people, were required to take an oath in which they said, "I'm not a Catholic," and those Catholics believe crazy things, and blah 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 blah. And um, then they take the um, Eucharist from a Church of England um, figure right I'm not Catholic now. Give me that sweet, sweet Church of England, um, <laughs> you know, Eucharist. James was like, uh, I'm not going to do that. And so you can kick me out of this fancy post that I was given as as one of the king's little brothers or the king's little brother. Um, because I'm not going to do that. And in so doing, he made his Catholicism public. He, w- he refused to, um, reject it and to take, um, take the Eucharist. So his big brother, the King, um, Charles II, wasn't happy about this. And he ordered James II's um, two daughters who were Anne and Mary. Remember the name Mary, we'll get back to her soon. Um, he said, well, these two are definitely going to be raised Anglican. I don't know what my crazy brother's going on about, but, um, I'm, I'm snatching these two daughters from this evil Catholic household. Um, he um, was married once and his wife died. He remarries to a Catholic girl, um, Mary of Modena from Italy. Um, she was, they were also married in a proxy ceremony, which is really interesting. We talked about it last time, uh, married a proxy ceremony. And then it was later kind of solemnized in a very brief, Anglican service in Britain, just like okay, you're the king's little brother, so we have to do this, but we're not huge fans of this Catholic lady that you're bringing into the family. Um, this kind of comes to a head in something that's called the exclusion crisis. So, big brother Charles II um, says, Okay, not only are Mary and Anne going to be um, raised Anglican, which I apparently have the power to do because I'm the king. But I'm also going to marry, make sure that um, Mary is married <laughs> to um, William of Orange, who's a good upstanding Protestant, um, actually cousin of theirs. And so he's going to, um, she's going to marry them, him. Um, the common people were still worried about a Catholic monarch, um, which again, could we could just, we need a button that says the people were worried about Catholics we can just keep pushing it. Um, <laughs> And so because Charles II, like Tyler said, didn't have any um, heirs, he didn't have any babies that could take the throne um, or at least have a clean claim to the throne as, an, as a legitimate child, um, that meant a lot of pressure and eyes were on James II because Charles dies, little brother becomes king, and then any, whatever Charles or James's kids are doing, they are now, you know, once James dies, they're the king and queen. And so people were really watching and they were like, you know, all right, hopefully this is going to work out because uh, Mary is marrying this Protestant William of Orange. Um, But as a result of this, so the exclusion bill was a a proposed bill in, in the parliament that was passed and it would have actually excluded James from the line of succession. So it would have just been like a weird little Um, Hmm. you know butterfly net that goes and scoops james and is like uh yeah we're not gonna let him have the throne oh Um, yeah just sort of like a weird legal workaround to kind of get what they um, what they wanted as you can imagine if you're james that's not great um he's not happy about that it's also a dangerous thing as a politician to suggest because if it doesn't pass then you're on record as saying you know when that guy becomes king he knows that you tried really hard to keep him from being king um and they one of the um ideas that parliament had was well what if we pass the crown to one of these charles's illegitimate sons and then that would work um and charles wasn't having any of this um interestingly for his brother which Mm. is kind of cool and charles ii dissolved parliament which we've also talked about um because he's like you guys look like you're about to vote on this thing that i really don't want you to do so I'm not gonna let you do that to my brother, so I'm gonna dissolve parliament. All of this resulted in something called the Rye Plot, which was a plot to assassinate um, the king and his brother, both of them. Um, and you know, those are a dime a dozen at this time, it sort of seems like. But interestingly, it backfired. So knowing that there was this plot to kill the two brothers, the king and his, um, his, the prince, his little brother, um, May that was a very unpopular idea when it came out um, or it it at least gave sympathy to the two brothers and so they actually kind of became more popular as a result for having found out and survived this plot to um, kill the king so eventually charles ii who like you said Tyler, was very popular and older and um kind of a better king in a lot of ways um he dies and so everyone's kind of worst fears. James II takes the crown. Charles dies in 1685. Um, but interestingly, on his deathbed, converts to Catholicism. So go figure on that one. I don't even know what to say about that. It's like, <laughs> you people are all angry about this and then can't even make up your minds. But um, so Charles died in 1685. James wants to be crowned quickly. Um, he, you know, wants to quell any possibility of rebellion and let's just make sure that i'm officially the king really fast so he's crowned um at westminster abbey in april of the same year so he got it taken care of quickly those coronations could sometimes stretch out and he was like that's not going to happen um and actually there was initially celebration from the people and parliament over james ii becoming king so they weren't thrilled with his catholicism but charles ii had been a good king and he kind of had this goodwill with the people because his brother was a good king and you know, some not nice people tried to kill you, which not everyone was on board with. So we're all right with James II. You know, keep your Catholicism in check, I guess. But um, your kids seem to be Protestant, which we like. So we'll, you know, we'll let it go. Um, how did his reign as king go? Well, immediately he was faced with two rebellions. Uh, we won't get into them. You can go read about them. They're really interesting. But basically, two people were like, I think I can before anything gets too settled, swoop in here and take this king out. And and then we can have, you know, we won't have a Catholic on the throne because push the Catholic button. Um, There was one in the South of England and one in Scotland and um, long story short, they were both defeated, but that's not a great way to start your reign out. And it kind of portends um, what else might be coming for, for poor James the second. So of course, Um, I shouldn't have to say, there were, during his reign, Catholic and Protestant tensions. Um, And interestingly, part of it came from Charles, his dead older brother, the popular king, from him um, beyond the grave is causing problems. So in 1686, just like a year into um, James II's reign, he finds some of Charles's papers in like a lockbox in his closet. Um, He had written them in his own hand. So it was, you know, definitely his, it wasn't forged or anything. And it was him stating arguments that, um, you know, showed the benefits or the superiority of Catholicism, um, Catholicism over Protestantism, um, which is kind of a huge deal. James, the the Catholic is like, I feel so vindicated. I'm going to publish these things. It's going to be great. He published them. He actually challenged the Archb- Archbishop of Canterbury, who's like the, you know, this revered figure in, in Anglicanism. And he says, refute these arguments like, you know, come at me, bro. And he actually said, let me have a solid answer. And in a gentlemanlike style, and it may have the effect which you so much desire of bringing me over to your church. So he's like taunting them. Um, you know, let's see. Can you refute these arguments that our former king made? Um, so I think that's interesting, like from the dust, Charles II is um, kind of causing problems. The archbishop refused, um, as I'm not surprised to, to find out. Um, he also, part of the the tensions that came about during his reign was because he promoted Catholics. Um, he tried to promote toler- um, policies of religious tolerance, tried to keep, you know, let's get some of these nasty anti-Catholic things off the book, let's Try and treat everybody a little bit more fairly. Like if a Protestant is out there causing trouble, we should probably be able to chop his head off just like we can chop off a Catholic's head, um, which I guess goes as, you know, that flies as equity at the time. You know, that's at least fair, I guess. Um, he actually said this, which is striking and, and very interesting. Um, he said, Suppose there should be a law made that all black men should be imprisoned. It would be unreasonable. And we had as little reason to quarrel with other men. For being of different religious opinions as for being of different complexions
0: mm. so
1: he puts forward this argument like it would be ridiculous if we treated people because their skin was a different color it doesn't make in any the 1680s sense. yeah <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to treat someone the, any different just because they're you know catholic either um and history would make a fool of that quote unfortunately in england and a lot of it, everywhere else basically um but interestingly, Catholics made up no more than one in 50 Englishmen at this time. So they really were quite the minority. I'd wondered, as we've been talking about all of this, like, what were the ratios? And mm-hmm. I don't really know how this um, academic person who I found this from determined that. And I don't know how that would if that would have changed, gone up or down, like, say, during the gunpowder plot or whatever. I don't know. But a, um, no more than one in 50 at this time were Catholics. So pretty small majority. Um he tried to pack the parliament um, so that he could repeal anti-Catholic laws so that he could undo all of the um, the things that we've kind of talked about where you have to denounce the Catholic Church and and take the sacrament from an, um, an Anglican priest. And he needed to pack the parliament to do that, get some of his people in there in the position. And um, that got him in trouble, as we'll see. But that's basically Charles or James II, Um you know little brother to the king who dies and everyone's real worried about what he's up to and what his kids are up to because um as they correctly guessed um once james is gone then his kids are going to take over and so everyone was real real worried about this kind of at first hidden but then later publicly um catholic and the last catholic king of england
0: So we finally come now to the thing that this whole series has been building towards, which is the glorious revolution itself, which took place in 1688. And as race explained, James at this point is not having a great run of things like Charles II was a really popular King. James kind of scares people off for being Catholic initially. Um, He has a couple of years where people are not really sure of what's going to happen and he actually has some run-ins with Parliament. He ends up dissolving Parliament. That's another button that we need to have on this <laughs> yeah. series of the podcast. is like, dissolves Parliament.
1: <laughs>
0: he dissolves Parliament for a hot minute. He ends up taking personal decree, which is where King is just kind of running fast and loose. And everything's in his command. You know, if anything's going to happen, he's going to decide it. Huh. So it's kind of a scary moment if you're living in England, if you're super Protestant. But it's also seen as a temporary situation because James II is in his 50s. He doesn't have any children besides Anne and Mary who are both Protestant. So it kind of just seems like, let the crazy Catholic do his thing until he dies. (laughs) And then we'll, we'll be good after that. So they thought. And then unfortunately for James in 1688, there are two events happened that cause immediate political crisis. Now, one of those events is something called the prosecution of the seven bishops. And instead of relaying all the details about what happened with the seven bishops, I will just tell you that it's more Catholic versus Protestant stuff. <laughs> and we keep coming back to this and that's just because it's the same thing over and over again. It's like Catholics not getting along with the Protestants. So if you haven't had enough of
1: that, go read that Wikipedia Please
0: go read that Wikipedia (laughs)
1: article. (laughs) I've not gotten your fill yet.
0: But yeah, so that wasn't great. And then even more of a crisis than that was the second event, which is that James has a newborn son. At the age of 52 or something, he has a new child with his queen. And it's a son. And because he was male... The son displaces his daughters in line of succession. Mary was the heir initially, she was going to take over, but because of this newborn son, Mary was now displaced. And the newborn son, his name was, surprise, James. <laughs> and now that there's this little baby Prince James out in the world, there is the real possibility that the Catholic dynasty could continue after James II dies. And as we know, that was simply not to be born with (laughs) the Parliament. They were not having that at all. So there emerges a coalition in Parliament of English politicians, and a bunch of them get together, and they decide they're going to write a letter to William, who is a Dutch prince of a place called Orange. And I'm sure that sometime in your life and education. You have heard of a man called William of Orange, just as I had. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever heard of William of Orange, this is that dude. You probably didn't know. I mean, maybe you knew what he did. I had no idea. I'm like, I like Liz Lemon, I could say, oh, he's the inventor of the orange. <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> and I wouldn't even doubt that. I'd be like, yes, that's correct. So this is that William of Orange. They write a letter to him. He's a Dutch prince. And the letter was written by seven politicians in particular. And these politicians come to be known as the immortal seven, because the letter that they write is very important in English history. The letter expresses despair over the present condition in England. And you can actually read the letter, it's online, which is pretty neat to read the text, it's not very long. And the letter says that they're really distressed about what's going on in England. They're having a hard time underneath this tyrannical Catholic king. They say 19 in 20 persons are distraught and dissatisfied over (laughs) the government. So they ascribe a numerical figure to it. Don't know that they really had an official survey, but whatever. (laughs) The letter also takes some celebrity gossip of the time and puts it into text, which I think is fascinating you'll remember the baby that James II has the newborn that could maybe continue a Catholic dynasty in the letter. They suggest that the baby is not really the son of James II and the queen. So that's quite a thing to say. Yeah. At the time. (laughs) Yes. At the time that the Prince was born immediately there started circulating rumors about this little Prince and they said, I don't think he really came out of the queen. They think that the baby was smuggled into the royal birth chambers, that the baby that the queen had was actually born stillborn. Wow. And that the baby that was smuggled in was maybe a bastard child of James the second, or maybe some other child altogether. Who knows? Wow.
1: And I mean, how would you prove or disprove that in 1680? Like, Just say, No, he's my son, (laughs) like you can't it's a big episode of Maury back then, right? Like there's
0: no way to prove it. I think that is a frustrating thing about looking at these details. It's it's like, Well, yeah, of course there was a rumor because how are you gonna quell that rumor, you know? Everybody who's against you, it's now their responsibility to say that baby is not legitimate, right? But anyone who is on your side can't really do anything about that besides say yes it is, you know.
1: Yeah.
0: fascinating though that they bring this into the text of the letter and kind of hilariously they add a little aside they're like we've got this new prince but let me tell you what not one person in a thousand even believes the prince to be real (laughs) and they say that in the text of the letter so they've expressed distress about the current state of england they've suggested that the baby that's next in line to take the throne is illegitimate But the third and most critical thing that they do is they suggest that William of Orange come to England with an army, invade London, and take the throne for himself. Wow. Huge deal, right? (laughs) You can, (laughs) like, I can't even picture something like this happening. This would be like if Congress today, I guess, wrote to Kim Jong-un. (laughs) and was like you should invade the white house we're gonna back you up when you get here you want a presidency yeah something like that right i mean kim jong-un is a little bit more of a malicious dictator i don't think william of orange had
1: the reputation but it's pretty close well and he at least was his direct competitor you know somebody who was yes Uh, yeah someone who was interested in taking
0: the throne right yeah i think Holland is just across the channel from England, right? Is that where that is? It's close by. Yeah. Yeah. So, they send off this letter. William of Orange gets the letter and does not miss a beat. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> "Okay, I'm interested." Yes, please. he gets an Yeah, yes, please. He gets together an army of 14,000 men, and in November of 1688, he takes the army by the sea and lands in the southwest corner of England in Devon. Now that's kind of interesting. Devon is the southwest corner of England, but we know from the map that London is the southeast corner, it's not in the same spot. So to get from Devon to London, he's gonna have to walk across the land. But this was a deliberate choice that William made because he lands in Devon on the southwest side of England And then he advances across England. And as he does so in the different towns that he's visiting, he gets more and more ranks of people from the Royal Army who start Mm -hmm. to join his cause. And he's able to secure 30,000 extra men just from the Royal Army who were interested in fighting for William. There were also even people from local little armies who joined in. I don't know much about the logistics there, if those were like little militias or whatever, but William had so many people. He actually was like, I would prefer if you were from the Royal army. So anybody who's here from the local armies, you're good. (laughs) You can (laughs) go home. Thanks for coming though. You know, and he sends some people home. They have so many at this point. So And he shows up in London. And at this point, you can tell that it's not looking good for James. But interestingly enough, James II, he clearly loses this fight. William shows up with like 50,000 men at the door. And James doesn't really have any supporters, unfortunately, even in Parliament. And he goes into exile. He does not lose his head, though. And I think that's an interesting thing to this story is that typically you would expect this monarch to be killed and he doesn't get killed. And actually, apart from some pro Stuart revolts that were happening in Scotland and Ireland at the time after James goes into exile, apart from those kind of revolts, ever officially a clash of military armies fighting each other. There were no swords on, no one was killed. And so, what they say about this revolution is that it was done without bloodshed. And that's part of why it gets the name Glorious Revolution. Yeah. And another thing about the name Glorious Revolution is that it didn't come about that it was named two decades later. And And the people who started to call it the Glorious Revolution were Protestant preachers at the time. And you can kind of hear that in the name, that the name Glorious evokes a kind of holiness that's associated with this. You know, it's a glorious holy thing, in their minds they're seeing this revolution as stamping out Catholicism and finally getting rid of James II. Yeah.
1: I can't help but wonder, I mean, it's got to be the case that um, James II kept his head because William of Orange is married to his, I mean, it's his son-in-law.
0: Oh, important detail as well, yes. William of Orange is married to James II's daughter, Mary. Yeah. (laughs) And that kind of, I think that's probably why this is bloodless, right? Because, like you just mentioned, it's his son in law, there's family ties, and because spoiler alert, Mary herself is going to take the throne next.
1: Yeah, so James the second is run out, like you said, he kind of realized he didn't have a shot, he didn't really put up a fight, he just left. And um, by fleeing um, that left William um, of Orange and his wife Mary to take over the throne. And so we get the history's power couple, William and Mary. And if you're wondering, yes, the American well university in Virginia, um, William and Mary is named for these two um, co-monarchs of England, um, One of the oldest schools in the United States, I think, right? That's right. It's the second oldest in America and it's Uh the ninth in like the English speaking world, the ninth oldest um, university. So they commissioned that university or like chartered it um, when they were on the throne and people were coming over to the new world and they're like, sure, you can start a university name it after us, go for it. Uh, And that's, that's um, now William and Mary, very famous um, law school and good university. So, they are now on the throne they have kicked off um daddy and father-in-law and now they're in charge which probably makes for an awkward thanksgiving although they obviously weren't um (laughs) actually together anymore because um he was like i'm out of here and mary mostly deferred to william um she and uh, particularly in the lead-up she convinced him like I'm not in this for the politics. If you want to go do this, I'll just be supportive of you. Um, she's quoted as uh, having written, she would be no more, but his wife and that she would do all that lay in her power to make him king for life. So like you just go and become king and I promise I'll, you know, help you out. And so she was supportive of him taking over her dad's job. Um, they were co-reigning, which is a very unique, um, although not totally unprecedented, but it's kind of the only of its exact kind in the history of the English throne. Um, William gets, on, you know, James runs off, William takes over. And so he um, summoned a convention parliament, basically, hurry, you guys all get together. And that happened on January 22nd, 1689. And he's like, all right, let's talk about step moving forward now that James has out of here. So he, William, obviously felt not totally um, secure in his kingship because there's still a king out there. He just left. And so it was, you know, not a perfect claim to the throne. Um, And um, his wife preceded him in the line of succession to the throne, but he wanted to reign as king in his own right. So he's like, yeah, my wife is actually next up because she is the actual offspring of the king um, or the former king. But I really want to be the actual king. And I don't want to just be king until, um, you know, if my if my wife dies, then I'm not king anymore. I want to be king forever. I want to be a real I want to be a real boy, you know, Um, and not just a consort. If he was the king consort, um, he would. Um, If his wife died before him, it would move to the next heir, And he's like, I don't want that. Um, In February um, of that year, so just a few weeks later, Parliament passed a bill in which it decided that James, by attempting to flee because he, you know, got out of Dodge, he had actually abdicated his role as um, head of the government, as king. And so the throne was therefore vacant and it could be legitimately seized and William and Mary have a pretty good claim to it. So um, her being the rightful heir. And so there you go. It kind of put the parliamentary stamp of approval on this. Um, The crown was not offered to James's infant son. Like Tyler, you mentioned, that was kind of the the big Catholic terror was James has this infant son, Um, but it was given to William and Mary as joint sovereigns. And that sounds equal, like they were both, you know, co managers of the branch, but that's not how it was. Um, it was actually, at the end of the day, the sole and full exercise of the regal power was only in and executed by William of Orange. Um, but it's done in the name of Prince and Princess during their joint lives. But at the end of the day, when you got down to it, um, William was actually in power. They were crowned together at Westminster Abbey in April of that year. Um, Normally the coronation is performed by the Archbishop of Canterbury, but theirs was performed by the Bishop of London. So kind of second string uh, Anglican Mm. um, um, higher up because the Archbishop did not recognize James's removal. He was not on board um, his name was William Sancroft, and he said, I'm not going to do it. I don't think that James has abandoned the throne. I think we still have a king, or I'm at least not recognizing your um, your claim to it. And so um, he didn't perform it, but they found somebody else to perform it anyways. So it's, this is kind of like the greatest fake out in, um, in English history. We've got this guy who might be a Catholic king or is a Catholic king might be able to carry it forward with an heir and then quickly big sister's like, nope, no, 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 no. <laughs> she <laughs> steps in and kind, of, um, and kind of takes over. And so William, uh, or sorry, um, James II lived out his, um, his life not as king and his um, daughter and her husband reigned as uh, this sort of weird co-sovereigns um, of England.
0: It's super interesting that they're always referred to that way. Like yes. William and Mary is the monarch of the time, if yep. or whoever the successor or the predecessor. If you're looking at the line, you're gonna see one box for William and Mary, just yeah. kind of treated two people as one. And I super guess that was
1: done. I mean, like we kind of read William was in charge, but Mary was the actual heir. Like if instead of yeah. running off, if um, or was at least an heir. If if instead of running off. James had been killed it would have gone to either his son or to her um, and so she had a legitimate right to it whereas William kind of just got it because he went and took it and so it sort of makes sense in that sense that we always pair them together because it's like William who sort of snuck on but hey there's Mary too who was a legit blood descendant and the oldest and all of that so maybe that's why we talk about them together but yeah I mean they, they're for historical fig- purposes basically one person <laughs>
0: You can imagine how the public must have felt. I mean, I don't know, but about the idea that all of a sudden the Dutch prince is just ruling England now. Yeah. Like this, <laughs> this guy has no connection whatsoever to the English throne, but he's here. You know? So yeah. I think maybe adding his name onto that helped legitimize it a little bit.
1: Yeah. And they probably you know, weren't going to ask too many questions because he was a Protestant and that was the vast majority mm-hmm. of making you know making the vast majority of people happy so
0: right right so that's the glorious revolution and as a result james ii gets exiled william and mary come in and then as far as monarchy changes go from this point on until queen elizabeth we don't really get anything because Mm -hmm. the big change right here has just happened which is that All of this business about James II dissolving parliament and having personal decree, that's done. You're not going to get that from an English monarchy anymore because parliament is going to be in control. And that's really what the revolution is referring to.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely like one of the big pinpoints in history. I obviously didn't go to school in England, but you can imagine this is just sort of like, you know oh the Gettysburg Address or you know Mm -hmm. whatever it's just this this seminal milestone exactly Yeah. yeah because that just you know that it um was a transition it was the end of the Catholics like we said at the beginning of this there's no more Catholic kings sitting on the throne or queens and um and yeah now all of a sudden instead of king doing whatever they want we've got a parliament and that explains sort of the weird system that you've got in England now where the queen is head of the government and everybody wants to know you know what the princes are up to and who's going to be king when she dies but you know the the, we've got a prime minister we've got tony blair we've got boris johnson these other guys and so that it's sort of a strange system to have a monarch still um but that split kind of comes back to this moment when william and mary um sort of usher in the the era of the parliament being you know ascendant
0: So in our next episode, the last episode of our series on the English Revolution, we're going to talk about the other daughter of James II, Mary's sister, and her name was Queen Anne. And I mention this because the cool thing about Queen Anne is that there is a movie about her called The Favorite. It came out a few years ago. And so for next episode, both Race and I are going to watch that movie in preparation So if you're listening along to this podcast and you want to get ahead for next week, watch it with us. It's a great movie. It'll be fun to talk about. And it ties in perfectly with our story about Queen Anne. A few footnotes before we close out today. First, we made a brief mention in the episode about the House of Stuart, which we have yet to define in this series. The House of Stuart is the house of Scottish monarchs, who took over after Elizabeth I died, meaning James I, the Charleses, and James II. The House of Stuart was an old Scottish house with monarchs in Scotland dating back to the 1300s. We also talked about how when James II had a newborn son, it meant that Mary's place in the line of succession was pushed because she was female and the newborn son was male. That tradition is called male preference primogeniture. And it was practiced in the United Kingdom until only a few years ago, when it was officially changed in 2015. In fact, Princess Charlotte, the daughter of Prince William and Kate Middleton, is the first princess in the history of the United Kingdom to outrank a brother in the line of succession. Lastly, we wanted to give a shout out to the podcast that Race mentioned for movie recommendations. It's hosted by Matt Weiler, who was a guest on our episode about the Mandela Effect. And it's called Three Films and a Podcast. Check it out. Thanks for listening today. Join us next time when we wrap up the series about the English Revolution by talking about Queen Anne. We'll see you then.